Today we are going to be talking about uh, the love of the Ephesian church. Uh, We're not going to get to our main content or verses, which is Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 until about halfway through. Um, I'd like to start out with a question of uh, what do you love? What do you get really excited about? Uh, who, Who do you love? What really motivates you to do things that are either uncomfortable, that are challenging, that are sacrificial? What do you really love? Not just, meh, yeah, that's nice. I love the good spaghetti. No, what do you really love? Um, So today we'll be talking about the Ephesian church a little bit. Um, I'd like to give a little bit of content and background so that it adds meat to to the story. Uh, Geographically, it's located on the Aegean Sea. It was north of Jerusalem and Israel. It was a major port city and a crossroads for trade. So you can imagine not some little dinky dock on the side of the sea. This was a sizable city. Um, And this church and city appear several times in the New Testament. Uh, It appears heavily in Acts 19, and we just weren't quite there in our uh, weekly reading uh, but appears specifically in verses 17 through 19. I apologize for the uh, small font. I'll work on that the next time I'm up here. But the title's fairly large. Um, but I'll go ahead and read all of these as well as we go through. Uh, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Uh, so in Acts 19, verses 17 through 19, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that's a remarkable thing. So this is as uh, Paul is preaching and what a massive conversion is happening, and the people are being changed. Um, and not radically changed, just of, yeah, hey, I believe. This, this is something that's driving action. And I, I did a little figuring, and 50,000 pieces then would be roughly equivalent to about $5.5 million today. So this was not just like, oh, you know, here's a book. These were rare. These were precious. You know, there, were, there was no Gutenberg printing press yet. So this was something that would have been to burn them. It's not like they sold them and gave the money. They burned them. Five and a half million dollars, light a big pile of it in front of us. And that's what it would have been like. So it was a radical event. Uh, Further, we see that Ephesus was located. See if it's going to click. Nope. There we go. Um, Ephesus was the location where 1 Corinthians was written, uh, uh, chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. But I will tarry in in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So you can see this isn't just a one-time thing where something happened. And if we continue... um, There were a few riots in Acts 19 and some further traveling by Paul. And then Paul finally sends for the elders at the church of Ephesus. 
And then in chapter 20, uh, verses 17 and 18, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. And then he goes on to tell them a great deal of information. And then when he tells them that they will not see him again, listen to how they responded. This is verse 36 through 38 in Acts 20. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Verse 37, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And what happened afterwards was the jailing of Paul and and him being sent to Rome. And it would go to reason that they did not see him again. And they wept. Now, I've left a few places for the last time. You know, we moved around a lot. And never did I have a group of men descend upon me, weeping and <laughs> hugging me. <clears throat> so this, this was a church that expressed emotion. And even if they were reserved people, my goodness, they were moved by it. So this kind of sets the stage for the people there. And specifically, these were the elders of the church. So the next time I leave or go somewhere, Brother David and Brother Eric, I expect hugs and tackling me. And <clears throat> The affection and fervor of that affection in the people of these, in the Ephesian church, and specifically their leaders, was pronounced. So now, I said we're going to delay in getting to our main content. Now we're going to get to our main content. Some time goes by, and you could ballpark around 25 or 30 years between when letters, when these events would have happened and when Revelation would have been written. Um, But our main focus today is going to be in Revelation chapter 2. I'll start with verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things he says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, quote, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So when I read those verses, that's what I would like to have said of me by the Lord. He knows their works. They persevere. They abhor evil men. They test the scriptures. They test those who say they're apostles. They test the teachers to make sure that what they are being taught is good and solid and of the Lord. This is high praise. This is coming from the Lord, from Jesus. This is high praise. This next verse is not what I would like to have said of me. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now that makes me pause. What does that mean? What do you mean that he's left his first love? 
because you know this was also written to the elder, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. <clears throat> so I can think of three things that this could mean, and we'll specifically talk about one of them. Um, could this be that you know the elder has left his first wife, his first love? Um, could this be that they left, as a church, they left their love of the brothers and sisters of the fellowship, of that fervent love that was shown to Paul? Or could this mean that they left their love for Jesus? I, I don't actually believe that it is a romantic kind of love that was left. It's not the right Greek word that was used and doesn't fit with the context of the rest of the letter. But I throw it out there mainly for our own English language's context. <clears throat> so no, I do not believe it was that. There appears to be a uh, camp of people who feel that this could be referring to the Ephesians' love for the fo- their f- brethren, the followers of Christ. Because um, verse 3 does commend them for how they labor for his name's sake, and they do all of this work, and they have patience and perseverance. So it could stand to reason that maybe this is the love of the saints that they have left. Um, so if we look at Ephesians 1, 15, and 16, which would have been written prior to Revelation, um, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So their love even now stand, at the time of that writing stands out. This was a church known for love. And then Ephesians six twenty four. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So there's a reason to think that it could have been the love of the brethren, how they showed love for each other. Today I'm going to take a different position. I'm going to argue or put forth that the love that they left was their love of Christ. And I'd like to talk through that vein of thought and highlight why, that I, why I feel that is so dangerous and give you scripture for that too. Um, so for the first, first reason of why I think that it could be the love of Christ is the Greek word used in this is agape, which has a connotation of being the highest form of love, the kind of love that you can't help but acting on. You are so motivated by it, it consumes your thoughts It's all you can do to think about how you love this person or what I'm going to do. It's easy to think of examples in our lives or just being so motivated, so consumed with something of how much you love it. The highest form of love, it's usually reserved for the love of God and the love he has for his people. Incorruptible. There's a bit of back and forth of was this letter originally written in Hebrew or was it written in Greek? If it was written in Hebrew, it would have been translated to Greek, but... We have Greek manuscripts now, so we'll stick with Greek, and agape is the word that was used. <clears throat> the second reason for following this kind of thought thread of that is the love of God and the love of Christ that they have left um, is how the love, how love and actions are tied together so closely in the scriptures. So I think of Psalm 51, man, that is small font. So flip in your Bibles to Psalm 51, and I'll I'll read verses 10 through 19. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, 
and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. I'll pause there. He's saying very specifically, you don't delight in just a sacrifice. You don't delight in the burnt offering. That's not what he wants, is just the action. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good, do good in your good pleasure design and build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering and they shall offer bulls on your altar. Ah, so there's, he will delight in sacrifice. It's not that he never delights in sacrifice or offerings. It's that there is something on the inside that matters more. Then he will delight in it. Okay. So let's continue reading Revelations 2, 5, and 6, and that will add what I feel is some context to why it is the love of God. Remember, therefore, this is Revelations 2, verses 5 and 6. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hmm. So there's a little more context here. So there's a call to remember, a call to repent, and a call to do the first works. And there is a commendation which feeds why I believe this is a love of Christ that is lost. The Nicolaitans were apparently a sect of believers who taught what was likely a reversion back to former idol and pagan practices, a lawlessness while still in some fashion keeping the name of Christ in there, but lawlessness. Remember the actions of the worshipers of the temple of Artemis and this meat sacrifice to idols and lewdness and other acts of immorality. It brings to mind Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? But this I have, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there was a revulsion among the church for lewdness, for acts of immorality. But yet there was still something missing. Because he, in verse 4, you have left your first love. The, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, this kind of self-serving practice is rooted in the need to satisfy yourself, that you are more important than the call of God, and that you, you would seek to satisfy 
whatever you want and use the name of Christ to satisfy your own fleshly wants and desires. That selfishness, then, and then that justification to please and live as you please, there's no need to take up your cross and follow. He's already paid it all. Certainly not. <clears throat> this per- perspective that I believe is rooted solely in a selfish view is pure narcissism, where everyone and everything exists, exists for the purpose and use of the narcissist, and how completely opposite the love, how completely opposite that is the love that the Ephesian church first showed. Burn the books. Burn them. Don't sell them so that somebody else could follow in those wicked practices. Burn them so that no one else could do that. Five and a half million dollars up in smoke. The love that was present at first was one that transformed their perspective to one they shared with Christ. Their actions showed a devotion to the gospel and to the fellowship of believers that drove their actions. But notice in verse 2 and 3, again, they're already doing lots of actions. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They're doing the work. And yet there's still he has something against them. So I have a question for you to mull over. Assuming that this is the love of God and the love of Christ that they have left, let's run with that thought for the moment. Why is what Jesus had against the Ephesian church so important to memorialize it in inspired Scripture? Why, why did the Lord of Heaven's make the effort to make sure that we could read this today. Why was that so important? I believe Scripture has the answers. To that, I would point you to what the author, the Apostle John, witnessed at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What follows in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching about how legalistic actions fall short of what God intended. Where he goes on and on of saying, you do this, but really you should be doing this. You know, you, you don't feed the poor. You don't take care of the hungry. You... you don't take care of your own parents who are in need, and you just say, well, I'm going to give it to God. That was their attitude. They looked to circumvent the law of love just so that they could follow legalistic actions. Now, you might go, Kevin, we're talking about the Ephesian church, not about the scribes and the Pharisees, but I believe there is a connection there. They were experts at following a law And having no love. So if we go to Matthew 7, verse 12, 
Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And finally, in Jesus answering the lawyer in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Again, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers were experts at doing the proper work without the proper heart. They could, too, run somebody out of the temple if they thought they were teaching falsehoods. They tested people who they thought were false. They had hearts of stone and were dead on the inside. And now this is where I'm trying to say why I think this is so relevant, so important for us, why the Lord took the work to make sure that we could read it today, preserved it all this time in Scripture over the years. <clears throat> if we flip a little further to Matthew 23, 27, and 28, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is Jesus speaking. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think there is a danger in making sure that we always do the right thing without the, and, not, and losing sight that we need the right heart. I think that is dangerous. As I prayed and sought what to teach on today, I was repeatedly reminded of the need and the call and the command to love the Lord. Not just, oh, that's a nice thing to do, the command to love the Lord with a love that motivates, that moves, that shapes, that transforms. And I'm reminded of... uh, I have a whole lot of scripture. There's, there's a whole lot of slides, so you'll be flipping more if you want. I'm reminded of Luke 18, 15 through 17. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But when Jesus called them to him, he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Many of us have children. Some of us don't. We've at least all interacted with the kids here. Their love is tender and pure and thoughtful and genuine. If you think of infants and those just learning to walk, 
when they see mom or dad, I mean, their face lights up. There, there, is, there is no hiding. There is no shame in their affection and the arms just, just there waiting. And there's complete trust that I'm just going to lean forward and I know you're going to catch me. <clears throat> a few of my kids lean forward a little too fast for me to catch it at times. <clears throat> but the, the love was there. And it, it is pure. How does a little child receive a gift? With joy, with love, with affection. Give a little baby a toy. <gasps> oh my goodness, look at this rattle. <clears throat> with gratitude. The call from Revelation 2.4 is a warning to keep our love for the Lord, to feed it, to nurture that love. In verse 5 and verse 7, I believe help wrap that up. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In verse 7, skipping the verse of the Nicolaitans, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What a wonderful promise. As he writes to the Ephesian church here, he does not simply say, you're sinners, you're terrible, you're the worst. And even then, even though they are doing all of these wonderful things, things, again, I would like to have said of me, that I had been tested and proved, that I persevered and did not grow weary in doing righteous things. He still is concerned about their heart. He wants them to preach the news, the good news, in truth and integrity, to test those, to follow through. Those are all good things to do. We should do them now. You should be looking for the context of every piece of Scripture that I've brought up there. Look at the context. Is he taking something, you know, just taking a one-liner? Or, or is, does the rest of Scripture jive with what is being said up here? You should test everything and see that it's true. <laughs> remember. Remember where you were. Remember what you have come from and through. Remember what it was like when you threw all those books on a huge fire, all those books of sorcery, and they burned and lit up, and everybody was singing the praises. And uh, the verses after, after that in, verse, uh, in Acts uh, 19, they, they, they say of how many came, and the name of the Lord was greatly magnified among them and in that area. Remember that feeling. Maybe to make it personal, remember the moment you were baptized. If you were baptized, remember what it felt like to stand there Sorry. To stand there and answer the questions and what it felt like to be submerged and then to feel the water pull off of your face as you rise. Remember what that felt like. That was not a moment of, oh, yep, just going through the motions. No, remember that. These were given for a reason so that we would remember. They're moments, they're monuments. Ebenezer's, 
that we could look back and hold to. I remember when my actions drove me to do this. I will remember standing here and singing in front of you with no accompaniment. I will remember that. Scary. Remember what you have come from and through. Not just a single moment, but all of the works that came along. The patience, the long-suffering, the joys. Remember what it was like to tell your family, I believe in the Lord. It could have been a joyous celebration. It might have been met with scorn, and it might have been met with anger. It might have been ignored. That's nice, I guess. <clears throat> but remember the obedience and, and what you went through to get there. Because they matter. As we've been reading in uh, the adults class in James, there is a reward for going through the trial. There is a completeness and a wholeness that can be found in going through the trial that, that builds your faith, that makes it whole. What was lacking is filled in. And there is a heavenly wisdom that can be granted to those who persevere. Many times it seems that Israel got into trouble when they forgot the Lord. And then they heard the call and they remembered where they had come from and what the Lord had said. And they repented and the plagues were lifted or the walls were built. They repented and they remembered. We are forgetful people. We get consumed by the day-to-day, the ins and the outs, making sure we get everything just so. It's amazing how much time you can spend thinking about, I need to mow the lawn, need to mow the lawn, need to mow the lawn, instead of, hmm, how can I be more loving? How can I show what is inside me to all of you, to my family? To tell of Jesus and his love and that old, old story. Lastly, I just want to end with, if you do not believe that this is for you, you are wrong. And that is a lie. The message of the forgiveness of sin, faith in the risen Lord Jesus, of repentance towards God and everlasting life in the midst of the paradise of God is for everyone. It is for everyone. It is for the young. It is for the old, those in the middle. It is for every background. Doesn't matter where you were born. Doesn't matter where you live now. That message is for you and is relevant to today. To return 
to your first love, the pure one, is relevant to today. Your love of money, your love of video games, or doing well in school, or being a perfectionist, or whatever it may come to, achieving some certain rank or degree, they will fade and they are like ash. But the love will endure. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It endures. There will be a time when we see face to face. And our faith, where we do not have sight yet, we will see. There will be a time where hope has been made full, and yet we will still have love. So I encourage you, believe. If you do not, it will change your life, and it should change your life. And if you do believe and it's not changing your life, return to your first love. And if you believe, seize the moment. What stops you from being baptized? The jailer was baptized in the middle of the night. He and his whole family... I appreciate the opportunity to come and stand amongst you and before you. It is a joy. And I thank you for your prayers for me and my family. I value them and treasure them. So, let's close in prayer. Lord, your words are true. And they are powerful. They are the most powerful thing to change a heart, to change a direction. I ask for those who do not have faith to have faith that you would gift it to them. To those that do have faith and do believe, grow it and magnify it. Make it changing. May they do the things that they are scared of in obedience to demonstrate their love for you and so that they may show themselves the love which you have given. You are merciful and patient with us. And we are so grateful for this time and this place, for your word, for the gathering of the saints, for the songs and the prayers. It's in your holy name, Jesus, that we lift these things up to you. Amen.